The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, if you aren't in Isaiah, please turn there now. Isaiah chapter 9. I just wanted to read this first verse. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. Now, Zebulun and Nephtali, two great names. Huh? Those are two sons of, of Jacob. And they were two places, two parts of the Holy Land. But it was always considered to be under a curse. And the reason is, is because there were so many Gentiles who lived in that area. And the Jews didn't really appreciate Gentiles. And so they thought it was like a cursed land. And when they found out that Jesus and his disciples we're all from this area. It's called basically the area of Galilee. And uh, they thought, how in the world could the Messiah come from Galilee? That doesn't seem possible at all. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was prophesied 750 years before he was born where he would be born. And he was born in, in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem. But Galilee is far to the north. And he grew up in Nazareth in a place up there. And he was from that area, and those who were his disciples were from that area. And so it kind of became a thing where people would uh, disparage him because he's leading a group of Galileans, and they considered them to be kind of castoffs because they were so affected by the Gentile culture. And they didn't like the Gentile culture. Um, but what we have here in chapter 9 verses 1 through 7, really. I'm not going to read through that again, but the people in, uh, he says in verse 2, notice the people walking in darkness. He's talking about those who lived in these two, this place of, of Galilee, the surrounding Galilee. Uh, he says, they have seen a great light. The light they saw was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born there. He was born, and then he went there. And he says, after having a great light on those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased its joy. So here comes the greatest figure in all of history. There was all kinds of prophecies about him. And yet when he appears, after he is born, and he goes north to this area where no one would think a man of God would ever come from. And yet that's exactly where he, he gathered these disciples to be his disciples. You know, God loves to gather people who are very unlikely. He loves to use the unlikely and the weak and the unimpressive. Wouldn't it be great, this is Christmas time, wouldn't it be great if, if somebody actually got you a gift that you really needed and you wanted? You have people in your life who tell you exactly what they want, and you're, you're thinking, well, I don't know how I could keep those payments up all year for three years. Um, but God has done something for us, which is amazing. He has given us a gift that meets our need, and that gift is a person. Instead of what we got for Christmas, it's who we got for Christmas. Let me just show you something here. He's the perfect gift, uh, and this is who God got, gave us for Christmas. Because we needed wisdom, he gave us the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor. When you need wisdom, if you could find a good counselor who knows how to read your heart and knows how to give you real, helpful instruction, then you would have a wonderful counselor, and that's what he had. He, had a, he was a wonderful counselor, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, because we needed deliverance, that is, we were bound, we were in bondage to sin, uh, he gave us the mighty God. We needed a powerful, almighty God in order to deliver us from the problem that we had. And then, because we needed eternal life, he gave us eternal father. I need to explain this just a little bit. If I, if, let me bother you to turn over to Hebrews, if you can find Hebrews. It's over in the New Testament. I guess that's too much to ask, isn't it? But anyway, if you go over, I, I don't know if I can find it. It's like, <laughs> uh, the book of Hebrews is an amazing book, and it's a book about, about here, but I can't find it. Here is chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, it tells us this. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, now there were all kinds of prophets. You go back to the Old Testament, and you find prophetic books throughout the Old Testament. There were all kinds of prophets in the Old Testament. But he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by such a one as a son. What I mean by that, he is emphasizing the fact, instead of speaking through a prophet, he decided to speak through his own son. And his own son was like him. In fact, his own son said to one of his followers, when he said to him, you know, it'd be, it, would be, it would be complete if you could just show us the father. Just show us the father and that'll be enough. And Jesus said, how long have you been with me anyway? You don't know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Because the Father and I are one. And if you see me, you've seen the Father. Well, notice what he says. He has spoken to us by a son whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom, get this phrase, through whom he made the ages. The word universe there in my text, I don't know what it is in yours, world probably, is really the word ages. He made the ages. Now, in Scripture, the ages, let me real take a shortcut here. The word age is always referring to a period of time in which God reveals something new about himself. And in this context, when he says that the, the Son formed the ages, and, and then in chapter, in chapter 9, verse 26, I think it is, he says he's the one who consummated the ages. Now, how do you consummate the ages? Well, he fulfilled the ages. It says that in the fullness of time, at just the right time, Jesus came and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself at the high point of the ages. Suntelii. That little word, suntelii, means the last click in a combination. You remember when you were in high school and they had, some of you looked like you were in high school and they had lockers and, and a little, you know, what do you call those locks? combination locks. And that last click, that's what this word means, suntelii. It means that this is the key to the meaning of the universe, the meaning of the ages. It's Jesus Christ who put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, the word sin isn't often used by a lot of people, but the word sin simply means you have a record. You have acted in such a way that you have offended God. And so God says, I want to deal with this, and this is how I'm going to deal with it. Instead of Instead of beating you for it, I'm going to send my son to stand in your place and pay the penalty for your sin. Now, my sin's worse than yours. I know that. But he paid for my sins. And so he said he came at the high point of the ages, at that last click in the combination, and he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And what's that, what that means is he stood in my place, and he accepted and received the judgment for my sin, so that I could be set free simply by putting my faith in him. The Bible talks about faith all the time, doesn't it? Have you noticed that? 
You read and read and read. It's faith, 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 trust, trust, trust. Always talking about trust. Always talking about faith. Why is that? Because that's what God wants from you. He wants this more than he wants. He doesn't need anything from you. You understand that, right? He doesn't need a loan. He doesn't need you to go labor for him to accomplish something. He can do anything he wants to do. But what he does want from you is trust. He wants you to trust him. Now, if you're a parent here today and you have children, I guess you would have children if you're a parent, uh, you know that you want them to trust you, don't you? It's one of the hardest things in the world when you discover that one of your children doesn't trust you. We want them to trust us. God wants us to trust him. In fact, he has worked out a way in which we can grow our faith. The Christian life is all about growing your faith, your trust in God. To come to be a person who has more faith and more trust in God than you had before. Because you believe his promises, you believe his character, you believe what he has said to us and what he commands us to do. I trust his wisdom over my wisdom. Ever have somebody give you some advice and you thought, I don't think that's very smart. I think I could figure this out better than that. Because you just don't trust that person and his wisdom, right? God has wisdom that we can't even measure. His wisdom is personified in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that he wants us to learn enough about him that we trust him with all of our heart. That's all he wants. You can't receive anything from God apart from trust. He gives you what you trust him for. And this is why he wants us to come to a relationship with him through trusting him and what he has done through his son. Not paying for anything, not working for anything, not saying, I promise I will never sin again. <laughs> that would be a foolish thing to say, wouldn't it? I promise I'll never do anything wrong again. I'll never doubt you again. But what he does want you to do, he wants you to trust him. He wants you to come to trust him. And so this is really what, this is what the coming of Jesus Christ is all about, because God sent his son into the world so that we would trust him, that he is the perfect picture of the father, and the father wants our trust. And the way that we come to trust the father is we trust the son. And so he tells us here, because we needed eternal life, he gave us it's quite literally the father of the ages. And the reason he's saying that is that he's the one who made the ages and he is the one who culminated the ages. So he knows what he's doing. Have you ever asked anybody for advice because you needed to make some decisions and you thought long and hard about who you should ask for that advice? Somebody that actually knew something about it, right? Like investing your money or something like that. Well, the God of the universe has all wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All that means is when I come to the place where I actually respect God in such a deep and profound way that I wouldn't think of asking anyone else for advice but him because he knows what he's doing. He has perfect wisdom. And so he gives us a man of wisdom in the Lord Jesus Christ, his very son, who's lived from all eternity and has the same kind of wisdom that the father does. So here in chapter 9, this is what he's talking about. He's telling us, the last thing he says is, because we need peace. You need peace? You need peace in your household, maybe? Just don't, don't shake your head or anything. I'll just know. I can tell by the look on your face. You need peace in your household? This is the Prince of Peace. This is the Prince of Peace. I've seen this God give peace to people that I never thought they could be at peace with each other. 
The Bible talks all the time about our need for peace with God and peace with one another. Uh, sometimes uh, what happens to us, we get alienated from people because of what we've done. You know, we, either, we, we do something that offends them horribly. It's an offense. And this offense causes us to be alienated. And there's this distance between us. And this distance between us, until that's removed, we can't have reconciliation. And what, what happens with reconciliation is a person confesses to the person he's offended that I'm, you know, I, I, I ask your forgiveness for offending you. I know I shouldn't have done that. I didn't think. I wasn't thinking straight. I was thinking like a fool. And please forgive me. And when there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation. Until there's forgiveness, there's no reconciliation. I've watched people go through divorce and the, the process of divorce, and I know what it's like for people to be so offended by each other that you would think there's no possibility of them ever coming to peace. Well, let me tell you what has to happen in order for them to come to peace. There has to, first of all, be an acknowledgement of the offense, an acknowledgement of the offense. One time as I was growing up, I used to work for my dad, and he got one of my uncles stole about $30,000 from him. And the way he did it was he wrote a check out of the back of the book because he could sign the checks, too. He worked for my dad. $30,000. And I can remember thinking he'll never be able to forgive him. But amazingly, he did. In fact, it almost seemed like it wasn't any problem. He forgave him. And then the uncle, because of this, he wanted to repay him, at least part of it, half of it. He thought he deserved half of it, and so he, he was willing to pay half of it. And, uh, and, you know, the only way that those kinds of things, reconciliation can take place, is if a person acknowledges their wrong and asks for forgiveness. I don't think you should say, I'm sorry. I say it all the time. But that's not what we're supposed to say. What we're supposed to say is, I've wronged you. I confess it, and I ask for your forgiveness. Now, a person could say, I could never forgive you. It's too, it's too big of an offense. I could never forgive you. Well, that won't be God, because the God of the universe has sent his Son of the world in order that he might forgive us and give us eternal life. And let me ask you, what is the purpose of eternal life? Come on, somebody. What's the purpose of eternal life? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the purpose of eternal life. Why would God go to all this trouble of having his son come into the world and be the source of eternal life? Have you noticed that? There's another passage that I know some of you know, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. It says, this is, the, this is the testimony. This is God's testimony. He's given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So whoever receives the son receives the life. And whoever does not have the son does not have this life, this eternal life. But what's so big deal about eternal life? Do you live forever? Some people hear that and they go, man, I don't want to live forever. <laughs> I've lived long enough. Give me a couple more years, that's about it. No, it doesn't mean just to live forever. It means a lot more than that. It means to know God. It's the capacity to know God as a friend, as a re in a relationship. To know him as a father. To know him as Abba, Father, we're told. God sent the Spirit to live in us so that we would know him like an Abba Father. And Abba Father is probably the closest thing that you could get to saying, Daddy, I wouldn't say that about God because it would be disrespectful, but he's like your dad. That's how close he comes to you when he saves you. 
He becomes a father to you. He's the one who created you in his image. And his son is your brother of all things. He's your elder brother. You go, what? That's what the Bible says, that God saved you. All of you who came to faith in Christ, God saved you so that Christ would, have, would be the firstborn among many brethren. You see what that means? So we'd have a big family. Isn't it great to have a big family? I have three kids. That's big enough for me. But it is. It's great to have a big family. I, have, I know two women who have ten children, two different women. And the thing I thought about them is that they are strong, strong women. They have a real strong character to them. And they are able to love these children and deal with them and raise them like they should. But, you know, I think that would be a great blessing, wouldn't it? To have a lot of children. It also could be something really difficult. But God says, and you know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't, he's not worried about being able to support his children. And the father says, I want my son to be the firstborn, that is the monogenes, which means the, the one and only son of his kind, who's been with him from all eternity. He said, I want my son to be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants to see a whole lot of people come to him and, have, and come to have the peace that he wants to give to them and to be his son so that, or his daughter so that you could call him father. Isn't it amazing that, that Jesus, the first thing he does when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, this is what you call him. When you go to him, you say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, what he wants is he wants to have a myriad of children who have put their faith in him and have come to receive the salvation that he has provided so they can be with him for all eternity. Now, I know you're probably saying, man, I wouldn't want to be with my kids for all eternity. God wants to. He wants to because he is magnificent. He's glorious. He knows how to love his children. There, there are times when you're going to feel like, as a Christian, you're going to feel like God's the only one who cares anything about me. Because it's hard for us to love each other, isn't it? It's so easy to have a grudge. So easy to find something wrong with people. And to keep that in your mind. So every time you see them, you think about their flaws. God isn't like that. God's not like that. I used to think that when, you, when I sinned, I was supposed to confess my sin, and I was to confess in a way that I said, God, I am a no good, low down, dirty, sinking sinner. And say that over and over again until I believed it. I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Then I discovered that God doesn't want to, me to deprecate myself. He actually wants me simply to trust him. That was a serious sin I did. And I thank you that you sent your son into the world to die for me and to pay the penalty for my sin so that you can forgive me. And, and forgiveness, when you get forgiveness from God, all you're told to do is to confess your sin. And sin simply means to be disobedient to God. That's all it, that's all it means. It means to be disobedient to God. And therefore, you're culpable. But this is what he says, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Faithful and just, you think he'd say, he is merciful and kind. No, it says he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness because he wants to have a relationship with you. You know, some people think that God doesn't care how much you come to him. He doesn't care about having a relationship with you. You're dead wrong. 
He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. That's an amazing thing when it, in John 17, 3, when he says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That, of course, is the words of Jesus he was praying. Some people call it the priestly prayer of Jesus. But he was praying to the Father concerning us. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about the people right here. He prayed for us. That's what he said. All those who would come to faith in Christ through the witness of these apostles of mine. That's how I came to faith, and that's how you came to faith. You heard the gospel message from somebody who got it from the apostles. And he says, now what I want you to do to keep a relationship with me is I want you simply to confess your sins. Don't lie about it. Don't say, I didn't mean to do that. You ever say that? I didn't mean to do that. Hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And we don't believe it. Right? Then why did it happen? Well, I didn't mean to do all that damage. I simply meant to do this, and it wouldn't have any negative effects. But the fact is, when I disobey the commandment of God, I've told you before that I discovered in the 70s when we were living in Pinal, I discovered a command from Jesus Christ that has forever affected my life, and it was this. It was being quoted by somebody else, but he said, husbands, it was quoted by Paul, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Now, you've got to think about that for a second, because the way Christ loved the church is he laid down his life for us. He died for us. He went to a cross for us. And he said, you're supposed to love your wife that way. I don't know why it has such an impact on me, but it did. It just hit me right between the eyes. I think it was because I was thinking very highly of myself. And when I read that, I realized, man, I got a long way to go. I'm supposed to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. And he gave his life for her. I'm supposed to love my wife enough to die for her and then to live for her. And so when we we find out what the commandments of God are, there's times when we are disobedient. But, oh, I'm so glad that for confession, he says, because Christ came at the high point of the ages, at the strategic moment, and he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So now as a believer, I've been forgiven. So as a believer, when when I commit another sin, I simply have to confess it and thank him for forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that that very sin that I just committed, you can forgive. I give you praise that you forgive me. Thank you for your forgiveness. It's wonderful, isn't it? See, that's just the Christian life. He just, Christian life is basically building your faith and trust in God. He's trustworthy. He's made you deep and profound promises. Uh, In this passage here, what he's promises is that through Christ, we are going to experience these very things. He is going to give us eternal life because he is the father of the ages. He's the one who, I, I could go into a long explanation of that, but just take, take it for granted for this moment. You can ask me questions about it. It's, it's a little more technical than that. But, but the fact is that he is the father of the ages. And he's the one who gives us eternal life. We received Christ, and through that, we received his life, and so we have eternal life. And you go, wow, you mean we can live forever? Well, yeah, but that's not the big deal about eternal life. The big deal about eternal life is God gave you the capacity to know him relationally, 
to actually know him and to enjoy him. I told you, I think it was probably last week, but I was reading this thing of John uh, Packer, uh, not John, um, Dr. Packer. I can't remember his first name, but Dr. Packer. Dr. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God, and I have used it for years as a textbook in a class. And then I read this thing, and he said, the reason I called it Knowing God is I didn't want people to think this book was about knowing about God. Knowing about God. Now, it's okay to know about God. That's a good thing. I teach a class about knowing about God. But it's much different to know God, isn't it, relationally? It's different to know him as a father. What is he like when you're a total bum, when you've really messed up? How does he treat you? Does he slap you around, or what does he do? How does he treat you? What do you you make of this? In in Romans chapter 8, it says, what can separate us from the love of God? And then he goes on to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he mentions about everything you can think of. It can't separate you from the love of God. Now, you've never had a relationship with anybody else like that. He is amazing. He forgives you based on what Christ has done, and he says every time that you blow it, every time that you sin against him, every time you disobey him, when you come to him and say, Father, I've sinned, this is what what 1 John 2 says. It says when you were in the act of sinning, the Son of God was in the act of of representing you to the Father. He says we had, while we were sinning, we had an advocate with the Father. That means lawyer, a defender. And he's the propitiation for our sins, which means he's satisfied God in regards to your sin already. And so we have somebody who's forgiving and who is welcoming, who welcomes us back immediately. It's wonderful. What a God we serve. And he did this through this son that he sent. And this is why this chapter in giving us all these different names is so important because it's telling us this is the kind of savior he is. You need, if you need a mighty God, that's Jesus. You need a Prince of Peace, that's Jesus. That's who he is. That means he can bring peace in your life. You know, I, I would guess that some of you here have a, something going on with another person, another human being in which you're, it's like you, you have an enmity that separates you, and you can't even imagine ever being at peace with that person. What would it take to be at peace? What do you want, Blood? God says, I've provided the blood. It's the blood of my son. That's why the Bible talks about the blood of Christ. It is the picture. It's the evidence that he died under the violent, he died a violent death under the judgment of God for you. Isn't that great? That's wonderful that he actually cares for me and he paid the price. I was going through uh, Taco Bell the other day and uh, I pulled into the drive-thru and I ordered what I wanted, and I got up there. And then when I got to the window, the woman handed me my order, and she said, the guy in front of you paid your bill. You don't owe anything. I don't have any idea why. I actually asked him, do you know why? He said, no, I don't have any idea. He just said that he wanted to pay your, for your food. See, that was just a free gift, wasn't it? See, this is what God has done for you without you knowing it. But you have to, in order to receive it, I had to drive through that window, and I had to take that. I could have said, no, I'm not taking that. I want to buy my own. But instead, I just received this gift. I just reached out and took it. That's what has to happen 
when you receive this gift from God of call, that's called forgiveness and restoration, he restores your relationship with him. Because even though you're not aware of it, he's the one who created you, and he created you to have a relationship with him. And you'll never be satisfied until you do. Things just won't be the way they're supposed to be until you are reconciled to God and you come to know him as Father. He's a heavenly Father, and he wants you to experience that. That's why he sent his son, so you would experience it. So my appeal to you today is for you to do that very thing, is to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to come to the place where you have faith in him and Find out what he has promised you. Find out what he says about his son and why he sent his son. You know, you might want to say, well, why did you send your son to die for me? And you're probably thinking, well, he didn't even know me. Oh, yeah, he does. He's the God of all knowledge. He knows all things. And he knows your life. And that's kind of scary, isn't it? (laughs) That somebody actually knows you through and through. And he says he sent his son to rescue you so that you could come to have a relationship with him. And that's what he wants to do in your life today. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.